We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now, here's your host, Sharon Kleina. I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleina Hour. I'm Sharon Kleina. Our show is about the power of water. Water on Earth is the most important nutrient life there is, and it is a living organism, water. Without the water, there would be no planet Earth, and and we've had guests on the show that have represented their backgrounds from NASA to NOAA to the United Nations and many other special guests that have said the the climate change is a climate change, and the water that we are experiencing worldwide with the flood issues, the enormous amount of rains, what is happening to all that water? But we know that the beginning of time on the planet Earth, there was something very unique that happened here. We have water here. It must be, there's no doubt, that the water could be discovered to have an enormous influence on the whole solar system because Earth, we have the water. So the study of water from the beginning of time has been an intrigue But for some reason, it was left behind long ago as a priority. Now, isn't that fascinating? So years ago, over six years ago now, when I decided to have my own radio show, and I said, I will call it The Power of Water, we've got to get influence. We've got to create an impact of getting people behind the issue of life and, yes, death. Without the water, there is no life. Without the water, there could be no discovery that eventually there could be a connection with your health and water, that your body's made up of trillions of cells with water in it. You're a walking sponge of water. You're walking on the planet with humidity in the air that has to have water for you to live for your organism to be able to respond. What is the importance of water on the earth, for the earth to have a life, and then all life on earth to have a life? It's the water, number one, before food. It's been proven for centuries. Water is more important than food. Food comes second. Your medication will come down the line and more. So, Let's talk about today, we have Brett Walton on, and I'm looking forward to this. He's with the Circle of Blue group, 
and it's he's a reporter from Seattle, Washington. It's a based it's a based news group, and he's a correspondent for the Circle of Blue. And they have been discussing and studying and researching globally the evolve what is happening with water and agriculture and what is happening to the food and energy. So we have so much to learn today, and I'm not going to take much more time other than this is going to be a really one exciting show. We're going to discuss something that I've asked to discuss. I want to hear more about recycling water. It's been going on all over the world, and I want this show and its guests to learn more about what we can do to for the influence of recycling water so that we know we have enough water for an eternity and that earth can whisper to us that we're never going to say goodbye ever to the water. We're going to find it fascinating, but we know it can heal. It is the wellness of our planet and it must be clean. It must provide sanitation. It must provide food. It's the water. We will talk to Brett in a moment and we'll listen to our sponsor. Nature's Tears I Missed is the water. It's a trade secret tissue culture grade of water. Nature's Tears I Missed supplements your tear film. Did you know that over the surface of your cornea, your eye, there's a clear tear film and it's the middle layer, the aqueous layer, is 99% water. Without the water to supplement, no different than drinking eight to 10 glasses of water a day, you will, the eyes will not be healthy. The eye drops cause a flooding, cause a dehydration to the eye. So with nature's tears, eye mist, with just a mist, it can supplement. And if you're wearing cosmetics and contact lenses, it is absolutely exciting. It works. It keeps the contact lenses cleaner. And then if you're wearing cosmetics, it enhances them. They will not run and you'll be able to supplement and moisturize the skin around the eyes, too. We'll listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, with just a mist, and we'll be right back with Brett Walton. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. 
Pat, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good morning, Sharon. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. Good. And I Beautiful guess sunny day here in Seattle. Yeah, a sunny day, a day here in Southern Oregon, too. Um, have you ever been to Grants Pass, Oregon, Brett? I, I biked through Grants Pass a couple years ago. I was only there for a couple hours. Uh, it's a gorgeous in Southern Oregon. <laughs> It's a beautiful area. Let's talk about today. How did you get involved? And tell us about the Circle of Blue uh, organization so we understand more about it because you're representing that today. Circle of Blue, we're based out of Traverse City, Michigan. And uh, we're a network of journalists, scientists, and designers who are interested in water and everything that it touches. Uh, So we like to incorporate journalism, storytelling, um, the narrative style of getting individual stories and show how they connect to uh, the much larger picture of what water is doing in our world. And we do that by interacting with scientists and collaborators in drinking water and sanitation and graphic designers. Uh, we're very interested in bringing data into journalism and making it more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's you know, numbers are being generated constantly, figures. You know, there's more research going on now than ever before. So we want to take the most important stuff and make it uh, accessible to people. So we produce the infographics with a lot of our stories that bring these numbers into context and show how they relate uh, to what you know, individuals might be experiencing in their own lives. Okay, now we're going to discuss today, um, oh, first of all, how, how old of an organization is uh, Circle of Blue? Circle Blue, it's about 10 years old. Okay. Uh, I've been working for them for three years. Okay. Now, uh, I'm really ha- excited about the data, the uh, analysis that's being done, so you can create an, a database for uh, people to come in and study. And uh, before we go on, where would people go to study that uh, so that when within the show today they can go in and study? Where, where, how do we find Circle of Blue? You can find this. All of our stuff is housed on our website at circleofblue.org. Okay. Uh, we have sections there, feature stories. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a section on infographics if you want to see a lot of the, the data work that we've done. Okay. Well, today we are going to discuss quite a few things. And uh, I have been studying water for well over 30 years worldwide. And uh, so my background is uh, we'll be able to follow with you, and you will be able to teach me a lot, too and our audience. Now, tell us, we were going to talk about recycling water, because the earth is getting water every day. We're hearing about all these flash floods and, and, and more water than people know what to do with because of the flooding, and, but where is it going? And discuss with us what you've been learning about recycling the water. Well, water, as you know, is in a cycle, you know, as it is. Oh, it rains, the, the water, the rainwater goes into lakes and rivers, some of it evaporates and some of it flows back into the ocean. Uh, and so this is working constantly. Uh, so as you mentioned, there's, uh, you know, flooding recently and heavy rain. So there's some fear that uh, the water cycle might be accelerating. Uh, and that's one of the fears of climate change, that we might have more violent storms, uh, heavier rainfalls, um, things like that. But on the flip side is that other places might see less. So you might have you know, less rainfall in more arid places like the southwest. And that's one of the regions of the world, along with other arid spots like the Middle East and Australia and small island states that are looking to 
increase their water supplies through reuse. You know, if we're not getting more from natural processes through rain or through river flow, through groundwater, then people are looking to what they already have to make better use of. So that would be uh, the municipal supplies that they're dumping back into the ocean or to a river. Um, so they're looking to reuse that and not have to rely on going farther and farther to get more water supplies. Mm-hmm. Now, when we, let's talk about um, the the recycling of the water in countries like Singapore. I I truly believe that there's something there that will become an enormous private enterprise business eventually when people understand that there's another business in water. Now, uh, when I was studying waters long ago, uh, Europe was the first country of the world to become getting into neighborhood water as a business because waters were not healthy. So there was one person in the neighborhood who had healthy water from their well or spring. So then they began to hand it out uh, as a, a, to uh, generously help other people in the neighborhood until it got to where the other people in the neighborhood didn't have enough. So they had to start charging for it to put a, a limit on how much water people were taking from the location of the generosity of the healthy spring or the well that was being used. So water as a business began long ago because of bad water and not enough water. So I believe that eventually we're going to learn more on Earth about how to recycle the water and make it into a future of an enormous excitement of being usable and not just let it all run to the ocean from every country of the world. What have you been learning about Singapore? And tell us about why Singapore decided to recycle the water. Singapore is one of the leaders in uh, recycling water, and that's because of geographical reasons mostly. Uh, Singapore is a, a small island country off the coast of Malaysia, um, there's about 5 million people that live there, a really urban place. And for most of, its, most of its recent history, it's been getting water supplies via pipeline from the Malaysian mainland. Um, now, for various political reasons and desire to have control over their own water sources, uh, Singapore's government has decided to not renew the import agreements with the Malaysian authorities. Oh, they, so this means they're now trying they to decide- be... Brett, uh, now, when they re- began that uh, contract agreement to have the water piped in from Malaysia, I do know the concern for uh, Singapore was they were con- dependent upon Malaysia, which become, of course, they had to pay for the water, and uh, they didn't get it for free, I'm sure. And then the political uh, control that Malaysia had over Singapore, because that was a big water source to Singapore. So now they did not renew the contract. When did they not renew the contract? Right, they had two separate contracts. One expired in 2011, and then okay. another contract expires in 2061. Okay. So they have about a 50-year window here where they're looking to okay. transition away. What's the difference so between the time. Brett, before we go on, what's the difference between the two contracts? Uh, I just think it was signed... Uh, it just different volumes at different times when okay. uh, Singapore Volume. was growing. But okay. I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure the details of the two contracts. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, so then now that Singapore is, is 
uh, has not, one of the contracts has not been renewed since 2011. Uh, what is Singapore doing now to become very independent and showing the rest of the world you can recycle water? What, what, what are they doing? Yeah, well, Singapore is something called the national taps, where they're looking to replace the imported water with uh, various sources. So one of those sources is they're trying to increase the amount of rainwater catchment on their island. So it's just increasing uh, the surface area that will collect the water just as it rains naturally. Uh, the second source they're looking at is desalin- um, seawater, um, desalination. And then the third source they're looking at is what they call new water, which is just a, a branded term for recycled water. Now, and that's that so N-E. this right now makes up... Excuse me, that's that N-E water, capital A, capital N, capital E, and they call it, you pronounce that new Right, they've kind of smushed together and created a, a portmanteau phrase where it's okay. It's as they type it out, it's capital N E W, and then lowercase A T E R. Okay. But they okay. pronounce it new water. Okay, and uh, on, because now that they have this new uh, invented uh, recycled water, uh, are they and the fresh and well, we're talking fresh water. Um, desalination. Did they find that that was so expensive? Uh, desalination, the costs have been coming down. Uh, as with any water treatment process, it, the costs depend on local conditions, mm-hmm. so things like regulatory processes and the water quality coming in, you know, how much do you need to treat it, uh, how much do you need to pump it, and you know, energy costs, labor costs, mm-hmm. and all of that. Uh, but in general, desalination is more expensive than treating recycled uh, or treating wastewater and recycling it. Now, when we call, say the word treating wastewater, and, and is that still cheaper than desalination? Did you? Yes. Um, okay. Do well, yes, you know the difference than... between the expense of that? Is there an enormous difference or a, a slight difference? Uh, it's not enormous. We're not talking... You know, orders of magnitude, so okay. not, not ten times greater or anything like that. But, but there, uh, but there be, is a cheaper, okay. Yeah, 20 or 30 percent. It really depends on where you are in the world and what your you know, cost factors are. Mm-hmm. But just in the case of Singapore, they couldn't rely on a single source. So they want to, like your stocks, you want to diversify a portfolio. Uh, and you know, desalinating the entire water supply for the city would be... Well, you know, prohibitively expensive, and doing recycled water, they just wouldn't have enough that way. So they're you know, trying several different sources uh, for their water supply. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when tell us some of the ways they do it. Now, when the tra- rains are coming down, do they try to collect it then, or, they, they, or is it a combination of the rain coming to collect the rains in certain areas of lakes or uh, controlled areas, or do they wait for it to absorb into the aquifers and do it then? Do they do both? How do, how do they reduce, how do they achieve the accumulation of collecting the water? I think there's a combination of uh, surface catchments mm-hmm. and um, you're letting it percolate into the groundwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the recycled water, they take, uh, they take the the treated as called effluent, uh, the treated water from 
the wastewater plants and then goes to uh, the recycling plant, some of which are located like on the roof of the, the wastewater treatment plant. So it's really co-located, saves um, building space, and it saves cost for construction and it makes it really easy to transport between the two. Uh, but the water that's used for recycling will just go upstairs to uh, the treatment plant and then it'll go through further microfiltration and membrane treatment to get out suspended solids, dissolved solids, um, any sort of microbial contamination before uh, you have a finished product. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, have you been? Have you ever seen anything like that yourself, personally? That kind of plant in Seattle. We opened uh, the Brightwater wastewater treatment plant in uh, September of last year. So they oh. do have a wastewater treatment component to that plant uh, with the capacity. And what's the name of that uh, plant? Up. What is the Excuse name me? of that plant, Brad? The, the Brightwater Treatment Plant in Seattle that opened okay. last year. Oh, okay. And is that privately held? No, that's the King County uh, Wastewater. Okay. Uh, King County is the county that uh, is, uh, is in the area here, and mm-hmm. they uh, own and operate the plant. Okay. Now, and you've been through that? I have, yes. What did you, I bet you were just fascinated. It was. It was very interesting to see uh, the plant open and talk with the engineers about how the processes work and who would be using uh, the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the location of the Brightwater plant, you know, location matters because once you have this recycled water product, you need to be able to get it to people who are going to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the major cost components to this whole thing is the distribution. Mm-hmm. So once you get your wastewater, you have to get it out to people. Uh, one of the problems with uh, incorporating it into older infrastructure is that you might not have, they're called purple pipes. Um, that, that would be the color of the pipe that transports recycled water. You might not have that infrastructure in place already, so you may have to build out another pipeline to deliver this particular product to you know, the end user. Mm-hmm. So the, the location for the Brightwater plant in Seattle uh, was close enough to major agricultural corridors here in King County. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the wastewater could be reused for irrigation and for landscaping. There's a couple golf courses that are within a couple miles of the facility. Mm-hmm. Now in Singapore, though, they are they they're using it for drinking water too, and that's that new water, right? Right, they are using it for drinking water. Uh, there are a, a variety of end uses for recycled water, mostly mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, most of the recycled water is used for either agricultural irrigation or landscape irrigation or for industry. Mm-hmm. We might need it for cooling water or for processed water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can be used for drinking, and that's one of the the main purposes of the new water facility. Mm-hmm. Right now, the new water facility being in Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. So right now, that uh, those, well, there's five wastewater treatment plants in Singapore that uh, are producing water, and 30% of the island's drinking water right now comes from that recycled uh, water, water stream. What is your evaluation, uh, Brett, uh, 
what is happening with recycled water out there. You've now spent some time, uh, and you're going to spend a lot more time uh, on this analysis, but what, have you, what are you learning? Is it becoming um, much more... It, 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 they want to go. Uh, they want to start looking at this is a serious problem, of making sure that there's water uh, and the site recycled water could solve the problem in time if they start now and not wait. Have you been learning anything about that? Well, just in general, across you know in the U.S. and Singapore and many countries, we're now coming to a point where water used to be this abundant seemingly limitless resource, and that's no longer the case in a lot of areas. So when you come to this point where uh, your your resource demands are being stretched, you have to become more efficient and more innovative, and you have to you know, make do with less, do more with less. Um, you know, we've heard that phrase before. So this is the, the case in water. I mean, recycled water is not a new thing. It's been around for years and years. There were um, irrigation projects back in the 20s and 30s in the U.S. that used reclaimed water to irrigate crops. Uh, but it wasn't until recently, you know, in the 1970s, that we started seeing more uh, recycled water plants in the U.S. as just the limits for water, especially in arid areas like Southern California, in Florida, in Arizona, in Texas, uh, needed new sources of water. But you know, going and building a pipeline uh, becomes more and more expensive the farther out you go. And just there weren't any more close water supplies to tap anymore. I mean, you look at the West and it's pretty much plumbed for all of the available supplies. So it's a matter of, of necessity, really, going to, to wastewater. Now, you mentioned the agriculture started so far back, and um, that is uh, a fact, uh, audience, that all over the world, uh, anybody, any country or community that started a recycling of an irrigation system to get to supplying water with uh, – and then there's another way to look at it, Brett, I've studied, too um, – is that when you're irrigating the fields, uh, you're also supplementing the aquifers below there without all that water running down to the ocean uh, that it's able to supplement the aquifers in the region that have irrigation systems. And that's something a lot of right. people that's... haven't thought. If you cut off that irrigation system, those aquifers will begin to slowly dry up. Um, because it not, if you're not getting enough rain one year, you're depending upon the years where you're irrigating for this, the, the uh, aquifers to be able to be supplemented. And now the other one, what have you learned about the recycling? But it's not recycling, but it is in a way creating a well-planned, um, uh, scientifically planned dams. Now, there's controversy about dams, but I, Brett, come from a world of studying that, and I'm wondering in the back of my mind that if there's a dam that's available in a community around the world, that if there's not enough water, that is also preparing for the aquifers and the recycling of water to have enough water when you need it for your community, but especially for the agriculture. Uh, our, Our population is growing. We need more food. So therefore, there's more food being um, produced. 
Uh, what is your thinking on that? Right. Well, this whole question of dams um, is something that is really location dependent. I mean, in the United States, the big dam building era was the 1950s and 1960s, and most of the the prime sites for dams have been picking up, and we're not really building any more big dams right now in the U.S., save for one that's um, going through the permitting process in Alaska. Uh, but in uh, other countries, there are it's a big debate, um, and size is a major component of it. You know, how big should the dam be? Should it be on the main stem of a river, of a major river like the Yangtze or the Nile? Uh, but there has been a lot of research done on the availability of water um, and agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is one place where we could really increase food production if there was a more reliable supply of water. Uh, because right now, a lot of the farmers there uh, rely on rain for their irrigation. And the rains, as we know, are, are pretty fickle um, sometimes. So if you know, this is a case where smaller dams or small-scale reservoirs, where you have a local control of the source instead of this large national project, would really bring some huge benefits to farmers there uh, in the form of a more reliable water supply so that they can have uh, go grow crops when there's not any rainfall for a summer. So, I like what you said. I like it better GDP. than the word dam. You know, words are an invention since the beginning of time. In fact, they're the most valuable invention, I think, for description of anything, and I don't care what it is. But the word reservoir, um, supplying a reservoir of water in communities, and it doesn't really have to be right on the river. Um, it could be on a stream or an area where they could begin to build that reservoir up and use it for uh, irrigation or recycling of waters so that all that water doesn't go to the ocean or fill up the aquifers. And the only reason there's a, da- uh, there's a flood is because the aquifers are so full that the fl- it begins to flood. Uh, Brett, a lot of people didn't know that if you have a puddle of water somewhere, that below there, there's water. It's holding. And uh, that's why at the top of mountains that have all this water coming down year-round, they're wondering, why? where is that water coming from? There's no river really up there. Well, they don't realize the aquifers at the beginning of time that filled up these mountains and created this abundance of water that came from uh, that influence. But we, we, uh, we're, over, we're going to take a break, Brett, and uh, we're going to come back and we'll discuss also, uh, I want to tell you, you probably read about the uh, uh, river in China that's turning red as of last week. And we'll see if you've, if you've got any information for us there. And then we'll talk about the Himalayan mountain water, uh, if you have any information there for us uh, on what you think. We're going to take a moment, Brett, and we're going to be right back with you. You've got a lot of great information for us. We're going to take a moment with our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Brett Walton. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. 
Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Brett, before we move on to these other subjects, I was just looking at something that was available to me that my secretary had gotten me before our show, and it said that in Singapore, the government decided not to renew the import contracts, more than one, which were signed in 1961 and to expire in 2011 and one in 2061. So it sounds like they didn't renew either one of them. Right, right. Are you, yeah. So there, uh, then, then they said they have, we, uh, the, uh, when the import contracts end, Singapore had had three sources of getting water so they wouldn't have to rely upon um, Malaysia. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, that's okay. I said they're looking at desalination, expanding their own catchments, and then Those the new the water, three. the recycled water. That's the three. Resources. That's the three. Okay. Yeah. Um, and now um, let's go over to, and then before we're, we're come back to another one in Australia, Are, but back to the... Uh, uh, Yangtze River um, here in uh, over in China. I've done a lot of studies in China. How, have you done very much study uh, uh, in China on what's going on to, uh, in China with the pollution in the rivers and the water? Uh, Circle of Blue has done quite a bit of reporting on China and their water and energy and agriculture, uh, but I I haven't been on those reporting teams. My focus is more with uh, the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Now, have you any information about what's good to, uh, about the uh, Yangtze River and what happened with the red color that they are finding as of last week in the river, in the water? Yeah, I saw the images. They're they're, they're quite uh, quite striking. Everyone's uh, described it as you know tomato tomato soup colored or right. the color of a nice marinara sauce. Uh, so from now, now I hear, can you imagine the way it's being described? And it's in the water. It, um, I read it too, and um, it's it's uh, it's just the, the water in China, and that's where they're building probably the biggest dam in the world, the second largest biggest dam, as they have the first one. And what are they going to do when these types of influences? And the, what is your analysis? And I don't want to put you on the because you've been studying now. But you have a country with all of the growth of, inf- of, 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 of funding able to go do a lot of things for their life in their country. What are they going to do about a river that one day they wake up now and it's turned a, a color of, of, of a sauce, of a, a red sauce? 
what is your thinking on what you've been learning? What are they going to do about something like that? Well, first they have to identify the source of the problem. Uh, there's been a couple explanations tossed around. Uh, one that seems very unlikely is some sort of microorganism in the water, like a, a tidal red tide algae bloom, uh, but that's usually in more stagnant water or oceans, so that's rather unlikely. Uh, the most likely source would be an industrial pollutant that got dumped into the water. Mm-hmm. That's what happened last year in a northern Chinese city where uh, a garment factory, I believe, or some, some industry, I'm not sure if it was the garment industry or not, uh, but a red dye was dumped into a, a northern Chinese river that turned uh, a similar color. Uh, but I think what you meant there is there was an like, illegal uh, dye being used by a fireworks company, and they were dumping because it was illegal dye into the paperwork of the fireworks or something, and and that showed up. But now they're finding well, they're going to have to look and see what caused this. But this is the th- uh, something that China has found to be so unreliable that these uh, these companies may be making so darn much money. Um, much money that every day that they can afford to pay the fine uh, and, and go ahead and take the gamble to pollute the life of people's lives with the water. Um, uh, wouldn't that be something if somebody was intentionally doing that? Uh, if that were the only enforcement mechanism, but uh, it's my understanding that the, the river that turned red last year, the company or the, the factory that had dumped the dye was quickly shut down. So mm-hmm. especially if it causes, if it, there's a lot of publicity surrounding a particular pollution case, then mm-hmm. the offending factory will get reprimanded or shut down or quickly, mm-hmm. quickly resolved. But I think the bigger problem in China, I mean, the industrial pollution and the Red Rivers thing, you know, is eye-catching, obviously. But the biggest source of pollution, water pollution, in China is from agriculture. Mm-hmm. So it's a much, you know, like it is in, in the U.S., it's a much trickier source to control because you have thousands and thousands of farms uh, who are all contributing to this, and there's no, there's no easy way to get around it. Um, so that's something that we're dealing with in the U.S. with uh, you know, the Clean Water Act turning 40 this year is something we're, we're still trying to get a handle on this non-point uh, source pollution, so something like farm runoff or surface runoff on streets, uh, which is a major cause of pollution here in, in Seattle with uh, Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, the problems might be bigger in China, but they're similar to problems we face here and in other countries around the world. Um, and the, are you thinking because of the uh, runoff of the of the uh, uh, all of the pesticides and the uh, fertilizers and all that is going on in the agriculture field, um, or you mean it's just a, over uh, too much water is being used in the, uh, um, as irrigation? Uh, it's from from application of uh, pesti- uh, fertilizers and pesticides. There we go. Uh, and we can uh, there's evidence of that even with the drought this year uh, in the U.S. The, every year there's a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico because of agriculture and fertilizer mm-hmm. runoff. It goes in the Mississippi River and is traveled downstream and gets dumped into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So each year there's this dead zone where these fertilizers um, contribute to algae growth, which sucks mm-hmm. up all the oxygen and 
means the animals or fish cannot live there. But this year was the smallest dead zone uh, since NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the smallest dead zone in the Gulf since they've been measuring. So you can see there's a direct correlation between um, pesticide use, fertilizers, and water quality. Mm-hmm. We've had many times on Dr. Dwayne Cecil, who was with NASA for many years and NOAA now, um, and that would be a good subject to discuss, too. Are you familiar with the recycling of water program in Australia at all? Um, they, do, they do have one, <laughs> but uh, it's not something that I've covered as much. Mm-hmm. What is your thinking and your analysis? But it's very similar to, similar to what we have in the, the southern United States, where uh-huh. cities, especially in Australia mm-hmm. uh, and in the U.S., too, mm-hmm. where the the population centers are all located on the coast. Mm-hmm. Those are ideal places for wastewater reuse to be um, to be a major part of the water supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we were talking about water being in cycles, as we all know. Mm-hmm. So when you're inland, um, when you treat your wastewater and you put it back into the river that flows downstream, and someone, some other city or user is going to be withdrawing that water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the Colorado River Basin, oh, most all the water is spoken for. So the, the discharge upstream is used by cities and farmers downstream. Mm-hmm. But now when you're at the end of the system, like cities on the coast, like Los Angeles or San Diego or Sydney in Australia, then the end user is the ocean, essentially. So you're not taking water away from another city or, or farmer that might have claim to it. And this is where wastewater recycling is, you know, the biggest um, potential for, for, for use. Um, and that's what there was a National Research Council uh, report uh, looking at the U.S. and the National Research Council said that uh, about a third of the, the wastewater discharged nationwide could be uh, reused because it's to an ocean and there's no user beyond that. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have a big push in Australia for this, because all the population centers are scattered along the coast, and the same with Florida and Southern California. Have you ever studied the Florida wetlands when they recycle that into that, well, it, it, canals in Florida? Do, have you studied that one yourself yet? No, I haven't. I've done uh, reporting on a, a different aspect of, of Florida and and wastewater, but yeah, wetlands restoration is another. Yeah, another way, way back in time, they recycled it into the canals, and uh, those canals go through all, almost all a lot of Florida, uh, so that the wetlands, uh, the, all that water, can be recycled. Right, and then some places where wetlands were drained to, uh, you know, back when everyone wanted to, to take all the water out of wetlands, uh, now recycled water is being used to, to put back uh, those, back those wetlands wet- to health. And yeah, okay, to make it healthy again. You know, people forget that life from water, water is life, and the, the how vital when you started studying it, were you shocked to find that as intelligent as our forefathers and, and history has been, 
to get us so, this far, but they really left the water somewhat behind. Did you did you learn that yourself, Brett? Um, well, we're only as intelligent as we need to be, and we've we've created a system where we don't really need to be smart about water. You know, up until recently, you know, you went to your kitchen sink or your faucet and you turned it on, and the water was there. Uh, so for most people in the U.S., you don't really have to think about where water comes from. And so that leads to ignorance in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we're seeing where places that, that water is scarce that you do have to be smarter about water. And people, you know, more and more are coming to understand more about their water supplies, especially in, in places that are dry or have uh, limited sources. So public... public uh, Awareness has definitely increased, I would say. Mm-hmm. And in health issues of water to drink, uh, we got into drinking more of the coffee and the, more of the sodas and the juices, and people were relying upon um, the taste of the flavors rather than relying upon the source of all health and the uh, uh, flushing of the body, the solvent of the body to detoxify the body has to be 100% drinking water in a glass. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and people, then somebody invented carrying the water around in a bottle. And I've had people saying they wish they hadn't invented that bottle because of the plastic. Well, if people weren't carrying around the bottle of water to take to the next location, there may not be safe water or enough the water for where they go to have to drink, so they're carrying it around to be convenient to drink more water during the day. And so I've been kind, I've been right in the middle of it all, uh, Brett, where water is the primary life of all Earth, and people need to drink eight to ten glasses of fresh, plain water a day, and still enjoy their juices, their soda, and their other liquids, but. <clears throat> drinking water is vital. And then we found that, <clears throat> excuse me, in hospitals, when they got away from a tub, a bathtub, when you take a bath, detoxifies you. This, the shower is a rinsing agent. It rinses you. It doesn't cause a give, provide a detoxification. When your body, 98 degrees, gets in a bathtub, it's warm, it'll open up the pores and detoxify and also act as a healing factor to help you feel better by getting that toxin out of your skin. Well, long ago, they decided it was inconvenient and it was much easier to have a shower. So we're learning more about water now than ever in history. What is the body needing for outside the body with water to supplement the humidity and inside the body for water to, to have water to drink? And then we're learning more now what an aquifer is. Brett, you'd be shocked how many, how many years ago it was when I started studying water that how many people did not understand what an aquifer is, Brett. Have you ever talked to somebody who didn't know what an aquifer was or is, I mean? Uh, I certainly know people that don't. I don't know if I've ever had a deep conversation about it with them. But, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's um, where. Um, and I look back on it, where have we been, you know, uh, not to understand, <coughs> excuse me, in school and the education and, and our homes, understanding the value and, and the life-saving uh, uh, value of water. 
Now, the other one is up in the Himalayan mountains. I was going to ask you, are you familiar with what's called the um, waters that are um, outburst lakes of water? What is happening, <coughs> excuse me, around the world of these outburst uh, amounts of water, and they don't know what to do with it. Have you done any study about that at all, and especially in, like in the Himalayan mountains? I did some, some reporting, I guess, a year or two ago about... Uh, the glacial lake floods. Uh, so it is It is a problem, not just in the Himalayas, also the Andes, too, where you have these, uh, explain a bit about the, the lake so listeners understand. At the, as glaciers melt uh, at the, the toe of the glacier, uh, a lake will form with that meltwater. And usually as, as a glacier grows and recedes, it will push sediment around. So you might have a wall uh, called a moraine, of rocks and, you know, accumulated dirt that will act as a dam for these lakes. And so as a glacier recedes and melts, more and more water will accumulate at the, the base of this glacier in this glacial lake. And the concern is that if it gets, the lake gets so big, it might burst the dam or overtop its banks or a tectonic event, an earthquake might cause the dam to break. And there's, really quite a bit of water that's held in some of these lakes at a very high elevation. So it would rush downstream, and there's villages and people who live at lower elevations who are at risk from these floods. And so it's a major concern in Nepal and Bhutan and northern India. And uh, they have engineers that go up and do surveys uh, every year to track the, the, you know, the changes in the lakes and if there's been any disturbance in the, the moraines or these dams that are holding the lakes back. In some cases, they've had to drill outlet channels to release some pressure on these lakes. So, um, so there's, there's a couple of research organizations that are tracking uh, the, the growth and the changes in these lake sizes. So when they go in and do that drill uh, to provide an outlet channel, do they let that out into some canals, irrigation canals that are set up to handle the water so it doesn't just all of a sudden cause a flooding? That goes right into the the riverbed. The riverbed. Um, so the outlet channels are yeah the outlet channels are controlled to you know to make sure it doesn't all rush out at once. Okay. Uh, but the problem is that it's really it's very difficult to get equipment to these lakes because yeah. some might be a several day hike from the nearest okay. town or village mm-hmm. and all the equipment has to be carted up by you know mules or some other mm-hmm. pack animal. Right. Um, so it's really quite a difficult undertaking. Right. Now, what do you know? Have you had any study because you've done so well? I really enjoyed this today about what is happening uh, from the Himalayan mountains. And as you know, in Tibet, there's an abundant amount of water, and the Chinese people have always wanted to rela- have that water become more uh, available to um, them. And uh, yet some of that, wa- that water, not some, wa- there's a river that goes into India, and they're wanting to build, the Chinese want to build a dam uh, with that w- river, that water, in the Himalayan mountains that goes into India, which would hold back some of the water going into India, on that the particular river, and I forget the name of that river. Are you from, have you done any study on that? Right, the whole Himalayan region, it's called the Third Pole. 
a great store of water for some of the largest countries on, on the planet. So China with the Tibetan Plateau, uh, the Brahmaputra is the river that uh, you were talking about where okay. it originates in uh, the Tibetan Plateau with a, a different name, the Yarlung Sangpo, and then it flows into um, from, from China into India and then to Bangladesh. Uh, but India and Pakistan also have uh, disputes over dams and waterways in the western Himalayas on the Indus River Basin. Uh, there is a, a treaty that governs that, but there has been some, some recent dam building that has brought the two countries into some disagreement. Uh, so it's, you know, in, in the, the Himalaya region, a lot is uncertain about how climate change will affect water resources. Uh, because glacier melt is a major source for a lot of the river basins. Uh, but the monsoon also affects different sides of the Indian subcontinent differently. So it's a combination of glacier melt and monsoon precipitation is going to, to, to cause water resources to, to change from where they are. But the, the exact magnitude of the changes, we don't quite know yet. Can you imagine, uh, Brett, can you imagine, Brad, what's going to be happening? You've got China on one side. Excuse me for interrupting. We're all here done almost. Uh, China's on one side with all the polluted water on one side. You've got, and they've got 1.3 billion people. Then on the other side, you've got India at 1.2 billion people. And they're needing the water. And people are dying in China with polluted water, and people in India are dying because there's not enough water. So well, there's, there's so there's much to learn. Pollution and, and scarcity on on both sides of the border, uh, and it's really difficult to to boil. It's a complicated it's a complicated situation essentially. Life so, and death. I mean, both countries are trying to do the U.S. Form of development where mm-hmm. you build large canals and pipelines to transfer water from where it is to where it isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. So China has this with two, with three diversion schemes to take water from the relatively wet south to the north, and India is considering this too with a, a nationwide plumbing system of pipelines and canals and dams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, it's something that it, you know every country is grappling with right now is you know how do we uh, maintain a sufficient supply of water for economic development, for human health, for ecosystem health, uh, and to you know continue the quality of life that you know, we enjoy. Uh, we are out of time, and uh, I want to thank you. You're full of information. We've got to have you on, and every once in a while I might give you a call on a subject that I think we could have you on the show with a subject to learn. You know, Brett, my goal is with what I do in my everyday life, is to get to a time. I, I want to go to those countries and humiliate those leaders who are why those 5,000 children are dying all over the world because they don't have any water, Brett. 5,000 children a day are dying because they don't have enough water. There's got to be, when Earth provided the water, there should be sufficient water for every single child and his mother to have water. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and anybody who wants to get information will go to circleofblue.org. And, Brett, you are a wealth of information. Tell everyone at your group I said hello and keep up the work. It's really, very, it's it's the life of our Earth that you're doing. All right, well, I'll tell everyone, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. You have a great and nice day, and be well. All right, thanks. Thank you.
Well, today what we've learned is the water on Earth can be recycled and the water on Earth should be well thought out and studied. It should be priority to your life. It should be your first question to your politicians. What are you doing with our water? And what is the future of our water in every city, community, county, and every country of the world? It is not necessary for one person to die because they didn't have enough water or water. And the food that is, should be abundant to us, that is fresh and agriculture food that should be there for us is because we need the water. But we also have to learn how to be wise with our irrigation systems, too. I do know that. I want to thank you for listening today. I always say embrace your life, somebody else's life, and this precious planet Earth. It is very special to all of us. And the faith that it brings to us with all that all power and the power of the water with it. But Earth is saying with a whisper, don't take it all with you. Don't say goodbye and take it all with you. Pay it forward and leave something for everyone else for generations, for eternity. I want to thank you for listening. You have, I hope you're having a nice day, and be well. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember to visit Sharon's website at SharonKleinaHour.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com.